This is episode 65 of Cinescope. And I'll tell you what a paramecium is. That's a paramecium. It's a one-celled critter with no brain that can't fly. Don't mess with me, man. I'm a lawyer. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and returning to the podcast today is Eric Skull to talk about one of our favorite films, Hook. Eric, how are you doing tonight? Good, man. Good. It's good to be back. Yes, sir. It's been a little while. It hasn't been abnormally long, but when was the last time you were on episode 50 or so? I think so. Yeah, Yeah. we talked uh, Back to the Future. Yes, sir. Part three. Love it. Yes. Uh, Just for the sake of everyone out there, hopefully we've got a few new listeners. Uh, How about you reintroduce yourself? Tell us who you are, what you do. Cool. Uh, My name is Eric Skull. I'm a podcaster uh, by trade or by hobby, I should say, um, over on the Harry Potter podcast, MuggleCast. Um, And basically that is a weekly podcast covering all the news and theories and stuff on uh, Harry Potter in the state of the world today. Um, as far as that goes, there's some new movies coming out. So uh, that is what I do for fun. Um, and in the real world, I grew up watching movies and I'm very, very passionate talking about them, especially with Chad here. I think, you know, I was counting it up. I think this might be my fifth appearance on Cinescope. That sounds about right. Let's see. You did Frequency. You did the Frequency TV show, which uh, we've <laughs> set aside and forgotten about. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. We don't talk about that. I wasn't even counting that one. There might no. be. No. <laughs> and uh, then. Inner Space. Yeah. Inner Space and Back to the Future Part 3. And Serendipity. Yes, sir. So, so number five, right? Or five and a half. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With the mini episodes. So I, I am thrilled to be back. I'm honored, of course to be a recurring guest and, and to get to talk about so many movies that really kind of influence me deeply. I think about them quite often and, and hook is no exception. Right. I, I, I contacted you this past weekend and said, Hey, I, I'm short a guest this week. It's been a little bit. I'd love to talk to you again. And you were like, okay, well, what are we going to talk about? And I said, I don't know. Do you have any ideas? I have a list of things I'd like to talk about eventually. If you'd like to take a peek at that. <laughs> And second or third on that list was Hook. And so here we are talking about Hook. You were very excited to dive into this one. I love Hook. I'm surprised I didn't push harder for it sooner. Um, (laughs) It is such a good movie that resonates so deeply with me. So yeah, absolutely. uh, Definitely thrilled uh, and excited to talk about it. Me too. And before we do transition into our discussion, I just want to say thank you to a new review that just popped up on iTunes in the past couple of days from M.R. Warner. So thank you, M.R. Warner, for the very kind review on iTunes. Anybody else, if you listen to the show, if you like the show and want to help us grow, going to iTunes or the podcast app on your iDevice would be a great way to help us out. Just leave a quick review, a star rating, and be on your way. So thank you once again, and let's go ahead and transition into our episode. Are you ready, Eric? Absolutely. Okay, so Hook came out on December 11th of 1991. It was directed by the Steven Spielberg, who, just to (laughs) to list a few of his films, 
also directed Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and the, under, and the other Indiana Jones films, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Schindler's List, Jurassic Park, Saving Private Ryan, Lincoln, War Horse, and the BFG as of late. The script was written by Jim V. Hart and Malia Scotch Marmo. And the music is by frequent Spielberg collaborator John Williams. Yes. To see his filmography, just look at Spielberg's filmography, basically. And also <laughs> Star Wars, the first three Harry Potter films, and many, many others. Too many to list, really. But there's not a dud of the bunch. So go check out John Williams. What is Star Wars? What's, what's I, that? I don't know. Just this little movie that has a, uh, what is the 10th film coming out <laughs> this next <laughs> yeah. month or two? Yeah. yeah. Good stuff, good stuff. And this, uh, spoilers, I guess, for our discussion coming up. Eric and I both have a lot to say about the score for this film by Mr. Williams. Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This movie stars Robin Williams, may he rest in peace, Dustin Hoffman, Charlie Corsmo, Amber Scott, Julia Roberts, Dante Basco, Bob Hoskins, also rest in peace, Maggie Smith, and Carolyn Goodall. Plus many cameos that I, uh, there, there is actually a lot of cameos that I wasn't completely aware of. So I'll let you go look at the list of cameos yourself yeah. uh, because there's some pleasant surprises. <laughs> Glenn Close rings a bell. Yeah, Glenn Close and George Lucas and Carrie Fisher. Yeah, lots of, lots of little people showing up here and there <laughs> you're saying little people because they're distant and they're in the distance kissing the yeah George something Lucas like that yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well as we always start off eric how about you enlighten us what was your first experience with this movie i have to believe that i did not catch this film when it was in theaters uh it came out as you say the end of 91 into 92 i was three years old so i was too young to have seen it in theaters. My parents didn't take me, anything like that. But I recall my neighbor uh, friend had this film on VHS. And and what, what strikes me uh, initially, you know, in my mind's eye, in my memory, is the case, right, with the real cool poster on it, Hook, with Robin on one side and Dustin on the other, and, of course, that giant Hook. And I just remember seeing this this film poster on the VHS cover and thinking, wow, like what a what a cool looking, you know, seems like like an adventure kind of movie. And when I did get around to seeing it again, I was young. I I couldn't say exactly how young I grew to love it. And it really became a film that I would watch over and over and over. And at one point, I mean, eventually we owned it. But growing up, this was a film that I would watch like with neighbor friends and kids they'd be over and I just remember I have a distinct memory of being in our basement and which was finished and we had a a big tv down there it was sort of like uh you know an entertainment center really nice and whenever we'd get to the part in the film where uh where Peter remembers who he is and he shoots out and he flies for the first time um all of the kids that were just like sitting on the couch watching the first hour and 45 minutes of the movie uh just jumped up and we would like fake fight each other and do like the great battle with the pirates and the, (laughs) and it was just to the score of John Williams. And it was just a a raucous, amazing time. This is the only film I can remember, like just absolutely a group of kids sitting down and then going like bat halfway through and just having a blast watching It, it just to this day, the score and the, the excitement and the story really just means so much to me. Um, so I just remember watching it a hundred times as a kid. 
We have fairly similar experiences, I think. Uh, This was another movie that I really don't remember a first viewing of. Uh, It came out a month before I was born. So Mm. I obviously did not see it in theaters. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it was just another classic movie from my childhood. It was a movie that has always existed in my memory. Uh, We also had it on VHS when I was growing up. And I remember watching it fairly often, not frequently, but every now and then. And Really, the main things I remember thinking of the film from my childhood are the, the fun stuff, like the the paint pool when they're trying to launch him off a slingshot and make oh, him fly. Ooh, yeah. or Who doesn't the, remember that? Yeah, or the Never Feast, or uh, who who can forget Rufio, <laughs> and right, yeah. uh, just just fun stuff like that. Those are the the memories from my childhood in regards to this movie that really stand out. Um, but I've always loved it. I've always thought it was a lot of fun. I thought it was a cool concept. The music always stands out to me, of course, as well. Um, growing up, we learn that movies that we once held in high regard maybe weren't all that great. Like Space Jam. I mean, wasn't Space Jam <laughs> the bomb minute. when we were like four Wait years old back in 96? Did I miss something? Is Space Jam still not the bomb? <laughs> it is in some ways, but in a lot of ways it is. Have, we, have you done Space Jam on this <laughs> we podcast? We have not. We have not, okay, Eric. <laughs> we have to do Space Jam on this podcast. I feel like you need to, uh, I feel like we need to to, to remedy this this comment that you just <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we, we will consider that one. <laughs> yeah. But okay, my point okay. being, um, Hook is actually pretty divisive and widely derided, including by Spielberg himself. He's just not fond of the movie, didn't think he did a good job with it, or at least thought he could have done a lot better job with it. Um, which I disagree. Yeah, I do too. Um, yeah. So that, that was that was my whole roundabout, where I can look at a film like Space Jam and I can understand why some people would think it's complete trash and may or may not be wrong. <laughs> I'm not putting <laughs> forth an opinion at the moment, but... Hook, I've always loved. I've always looked at it fondly. I haven't watched it in years, though, and a lot large part of that was because of Robin Williams' death. Um, he, We lost Robin Williams a month after I lost a close friend to the same causes. Um, so that's, that's the celebrity death that has hit me the hardest in my lifetime. Um, it was tough. And Bob Hoskins as well, he... It was always one of my favorites in stuff like Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That's long been a favorite film of mine. Yeah. Yeah. And we lost him just a year or two ago. And so one reason I hadn't watched this movie in a long time was because I'd just sort of been avoiding feeling emotions circ- uh, circled around those two people in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, but watching last night, I watched it really late. Like I started this movie after midnight um, wow. and it, it is a long movie, <laughs> but yeah. uh, I was enchanted the whole way through. I wasn't bored at all. I, even as a kid, I can only remember loving this movie and it's still the case today. So uh, roundabout way. I love this film. I'm excited to talk about it. How about we dive into story details? Just a few more comments here I have to make on what this sort of stuff you just said, actually. Uh-huh. Um, this was the film I went to after Rob, after I, we heard about Robin Williams' passing. Um, you know, every I, I feel like a lot of people that night, as is just like with the recent death of Tom Petty, you know, you then hear all of his music on the radio, and it kind of stings even more in a way, um, people paying sort of renewed attention. But um, Hook was definitely the film that I went to and watched – I think that same evening because he really turns in a performance. Robin Williams shines in this film, perhaps 
perhaps brighter than he does in some films. And and that's hard to do because a lot of Robin Williams movies, you can tell he put his soul into, but something about this film and its analysis of life and viewing life as a, a great adventure and the, you know, the um, ruminations on growing up and the ruminations on becoming an adult. This is a film that has, for me, aged like a fine wine. It, it, to me, it, it only gets better and resonates even more now that I'm older than it did when I was a child. Right. You um, and I have both proven that we're, we're quite fond of these father-son kind of stories. I guess, <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Just to, to throw that out there, because when we watched Frequency back way back episode three of Cinescope, yeah. um, that movie destroyed me, too. Because yeah. it's about the, this father-son relationship that was really endearing. And uh, there's lots of stuff that happens in that movie to really strengthen that bond. And in a lot of ways, that is a focus here. Um, made even more poignant, I suppose, by the fact that we're talking about orphans in most cases um, yeah. in the film. And so it, it was an interesting dynamic to see this kid who grew up without a father become a father himself and then sort of lose sight of what it means to be a child and what it means to be imaginative and eventually find himself through his youth and realize that you can be an adult and a child in many ways at the same time. But yeah, to use to, well, yeah, to be, to always be true to yourself and to allow the sort of the fun side shine through. And enhance, you know, and it, and it helps your relationships, you know, a, a, as an adult. I, I will say right before we get into it, not to hold you up too much, but I did manage very recently, uh, I think it, it was over the summer, maybe in July, to see Hook on the big screen, on the silver screen. It oh, came man. to, I know, it came to the Music Box Theater, which is a, a really nice kind of art house theater in Chicago. And it was actually a 70 millimeter production uh, film, which was, you know, it's supposed to just be the clearest, most crazy presentation. As it turns out, the print they used was dirty. It actually didn't look good at all. Um, my DVD copy looks better than it looked in the theaters. But the the reason to go and, and really the takeaway was, I mean, the audience was packed. It was a sold out show of a pretty large theater um, showing this movie. And the experience was 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 life affirming, really, because to witness a movie again, I was way too young to see this in theaters and wouldn't have remembered had I done so to begin with. But seeing this with people, and they were all roughly my age, same boat, you know, they 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 hadn't seen it or this was a, a good opportunity. Laughing along, um, getting hyped up in all the same moments, uh, really appreciating the performances of all the actors, not just Bob and Robin and Dustin, but literally everybody. It was a transformative experience. It, it, it changed something fundamentally in me. Getting out of that theater after having experienced that with a group of, of people, like a group of strangers, is, is so, was so shocking, and, and I won't soon forget it. So I certainly hope now, I know there's the, the 26th anniversary is coming up next month, as you mentioned. Um, it's not quite the 25th. You know, we passed that. But hopefully, within a couple of years, there will be more opportunities to see Hook um, in a public setting and on and on screens, I, I was thrilled that they hadn't forgotten all about this movie. You know that that it did come to theaters and did sort of a, I guess what was probably a multi city tour. But seeing it in theaters is not something that you should ever turn down because of 
how much it resonates with live audiences. And this may be a, a deep contrast to the people who actually saw it in 91 because the film, you know, was sort of not well received, uh, I'm gathering. But these days, it absolutely, to borrow a term, flies. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... I'm yeah. always a firm believer in seeing films the way they were intended to be seen, which is on a big screen. And yeah. only part of that really has to do with the size of the screen and the sound system. A large part of it is to be seeing it with an audience. And these older films that have these limited re-releases, they are the best ones to go see in the theaters because people who buy tickets for those are fans. And so you're sitting yeah. in an audience in a theater with a whole bunch of people who love the movie the same way you do. I've gotten the opportunity to see Back to the Future in theaters a few times. Yeah. Um, and it, it's always just a great experience because everybody there loves Back to the Future. It's not an experience where some people are going to love it, some people are going to hate it. Everybody there is there because they enjoy the movie. So that being said, if you get a chance to see something like Hook, and if I get a chance to see Hook on the big screen, I will yeah. be first in line. Yeah, it was definitely as live an audience as I had when watching Thor Ragnarok last weekend. Um, you know, people were laughing just as much and people were enjoying themselves just as much as if it were the latest Marvel movie. But no, this film was 1991. Come on. <laughs> we're old, that's basically. A, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Well, but also that's that's a feat. It's a good movie, yeah, everybody. <laughs> it is. I'm trying to say. It is. And uh, what is it about this movie that makes it so good, Eric? What what in the story specifically, just uh, story outline, set pieces, that kind of stuff? What stands out oh, to you? Oh, I'm so glad you que mentioned the set pieces. I think the sets have a heck of a lot to do with uh, this film, both the set and the score, which are completely separate from the superb acting and great story and solid dialogue, but really Neverland, you know, most of this film, according to the Wikipedia page was filmed on sound stages, uh, in California, but you can tell they, they built a Neverland and it's a Neverland that I frankly would love to visit something about, Every inch of the screen is so colorful and playful and in ways you wouldn't expect childish and fitting for the world's inhabitants that you completely and instantly believe that you're somewhere else. And this may have something to do with the dulling down of the London scenes, you know, everything that takes place in the real world in this movie is shot kind of dull and dreary and it's raining and it's Christmas time, which is just normal, but it's like very wintry in contrast with, you know, the brights, the bright colors and sunshine and summertime of Neverland. But really the sets pop and the soundtrack perfectly manages, in, to my mind, to completely span the range of emotion that we as viewers are feeling, you know, torn between Peter's struggle to be a professional, his struggle to interact with his children, and the the sort of fantasy elements of the greater world that are trying to force themselves back into his life and his nature. I mean, I think this this is a film, again, the more you watch it, the more you think about it, there's just more to love. Um, but what stands out immediately to me are, are, are everywhere that the characters are put in and the music that it's set to. It's so creative. Uh, places like the, the pirate city, which is basically a mass of boats, uh, <laughs> tied together and they're, they're swinging back and forth. They're taking gangplanks from one ship to the next. And it, it's just this really cool 
scene, the, the first introduction we get to Neverland really is when everybody's preparing for the arrival of Hook and the attachment of of the Hook as Smee is carrying her around on a pillow. It's it's just this weird, this amazingly kooky kind of scene, but you get a glimpse of everything that is around, and then you get to places like the Lost Boys' Lair, where it's these this like series of tree houses connected to each other and skateboard ramps and basketball courts and all these things you would expect kids to have but with their own sort of twist on it to fit this magical environment and it's all real i mean i can't tell you how many times i tried to create even a something that was a small like modicum of 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 anything similar to what the lost boys had in my own like house you know i would pull some pillows and blankets and i don't know if i was using like old gift wrap uh insert uh you know paper paper towel uh, tubes to like build up a structure of some sort. But man, did I try and recreate some of the fun that is just seen on, on film to no avail. It's just, it boggles the mind how fun and exciting the lost boys encampment in particular is and how everything is like, got like a fresh coat of paint on it that they've, you know, graffitied or it's just all got their personality and the colors of the costumes that they're wearing you know, it, it just everything is fashioned with the highest amount of playfulness in mind without it being somehow unrealistic or, you know, not relatable, I think. And there's all these fun concepts as well, such as the Never Feast. I mean, that's the one that really stands out in my mind. When yeah. I think of Hook, uh, in a lot of ways, I think of that scene because it's uh, in a lot of ways the sort of turning point of the film where Peter really understands who he used to be. Uh, he doesn't you're remember everything it. yet. You're doing it, Peter. You're, <laughs> right. using, you're, you're, you're playing with us, Peter. <laughs> right, right. And, and it's this cool concept of how you have to use your imagination for the experience to become real. It's just yeah. the way a kid would imagine it playing in our world as a toddler. They, they experience things as real when they pretend. And, uh, and it, it, it it's something that they can have fun with, whether everybody else sees it or not, they're experiencing it. And it's the same way here, except it's uh, personified. I don't know if that's the word I'm looking for, but what he imagines becomes real. And I always, as a kid, thought the food and especially all the colorful ones looked delicious. (laughs) Um, But it's just a a cool concept, a cool scene of uh, really epitomizing what it means to be a kid and playing pretend. The budget on this film, and and you were mentioning the pirates, you know, carrying around the hook. The fact that, I mean, hundreds of extras there had to be. I mean, there are so many pirates in every shot, and they are all doing something and going somewhere. And the, the fact that the camera can follow them around these huge, 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 you know, boats and sound stages and everything, like the the budget on this film is clearly like didn't hurt, right? <laughs> um, right. Being Spielberg like they, has its advantages. Yeah, you feel like they had the uh, money to to play around with some of this stuff, but really it 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 isn't gaudy or it's gaudy in the way that it's supposed to be, but it's not overdone or overproduced or overbudgeted. The way that, you know, films these days might have uh tend to have a lot more, you know, computer effects and all this stuff. The fact that this film is before that time um I think works to its benefit and and the few things that they do have to do effects wise Peter's flying um I'm thinking of also the flowers that are alive and are kind of like have little personalities and weird stuff you know like however they did that it, it's just it's really inspiring um and I still don't really see any wires when uh 
Peter flies, so I don't know how they did that. I'm pretty sure Robin Williams <laughs> could just fly. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Robin yeah. Williams could just fly on the power of his personality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I love the look of the film. I love the feel of the film. I love the concepts. Um, and I love the just the, the, the setup. I mean, we know it's a Peter Pan movie just be, from the marketing, from the poster, from all that kind of stuff. Yeah. We know what it's supposed to be. But when we first start the film, Peter is so far distant from the Peter Pan we know from like the Disney cartoon, for example. He's the least childlike, the least imaginative, and really the least likable man ever. He is incredibly unlikable at the start of the film. Um, <laughs> he He's forgotten he's Peter, and he has grown up. The whole concept was Peter, of Peter Pan was that he didn't want to grow up. And yeah. we, we get this intro to the film with a, a song written by John Williams and uh, Leslie Bercuse, I think, uh, wrote mm. the lyrics called uh, I Don't Want to Grow Up or something to that effect. Yeah. And uh, it, it it's telling the story of Peter Pan. And at the same time, here's Peter out in the audience of his daughter's play uh, on the phone, very grown up and very grumpy and very much again, distant from this character on stage. Um, So I I just love the setup. I love the concept of the film where Peter Pan has to relearn how to be Peter Pan in order to save his kids. So it's a later point in life. It's, it's really interesting to me. Yeah. And, and all of the elements um, such as, you know, Captain Hook and Tinkerbell and the mermaids and the lost boys and, and not aging and all these things that um, are quintessential Peter Pan things that everybody knows and remembers take a back seat at first to establishing who Peter is now that he has grown up. I think proper weight uh, is paid. Proper attention is given to who he has become this sort of bad father and his relationship with his children um, as well. You know, the first probably 45 minutes to an hour of the film is spent on him failing as a father trying to relate to his children, um, discussing with his wife, you know, sort of what his career uh, priorities are. And, you know, it's he's not in a good place. And, and I think the film really shows a sort of, without it being too bleak, kind of an unhappy portrait of a man, of a grown man. And the maturity with which it is, is played shows, um, I was reading recently that, that Spielberg you know, himself had a personal connection with uh, Peter Banning in not relating to his children. And sometimes because whenever he'd be on these long movie shoots, he would only get to see his kids like basically on the weekends. And he just felt like he wasn't being their father like that shines through like this is this is perfect for the kind of film that uh, Hook ended up being, which is, you know, it, 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 it analyzes all of these sort of concepts and really tries to say something about them, I think. And and so you could have just done a movie that was all Neverland and fun and games and evil, mean Captain Hook, but so much nuance is, is present, not, and not just in Peter's character, but even in Hook's about, you know, because Hook is the one who's, who's grown up and there's no going back for him. You know, he, he is absolutely and has always been the elder to Peter. And, you know, it's sort of, it's just so interesting in, in, in seeing all of these characters deal with their situations in their own unique ways. Well, let's talk about Peter a little bit more in depth. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it's it's 
worth noting that he's not an awful dad because he doesn't care about his kids or love his kids, but it's because he cares about other things first. And really, his problem is that he's a man of extremes in a lot of ways. At the beginning, he goes too extreme into overworking and ignoring his kids and setting up meetings during important baseball games. So yeah. that, that scene, I, I'm so sad for Jack every time I watch the film because he looks over and what does he see sitting next to his mom? A crony sent by his dad with a video camera because he didn't <laughs> expect to be there. Uh, that that's so sad, and he it's just so impersonal. This relationship he has with his kids, and it's again not because he doesn't care, not because he doesn't love them, but because he he really is putting other things first. But when he becomes Peter Pan later in the film, and he he remembers his past, he remembers his childhood and time spent in Neverland. He, there's a, a scene or two where he fully absorbs into that character and he forgets that he has kids and forgets he has a wife and a job and that Neverland isn't his permanent home. Um, but he does find that balance eventually. And that, that's sort of about sort of what his journey is in this film really is finding balance between uh, adulthood and childhood, between work and family, between being Peter and being, or Peter Pan and Peter Banning. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's nice to see how rejuvenated he is at the end of the film and how he's really sort of a new man. Yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, so th- this film with with Peter and how it treats him and his character arc is really meaningful. And I think it, it, it should reach a lot of people. And, and thinking about Jack, in particular, the Jack actor um, in relating in, in trying to relate to his dad, you really sympathize with Maggie as well. You know, both the children in this film are are real, really well cast, and, you know, they're given a, a lot to do. Um, you know, there's this whole point in the movie where Hook tries to be their their dad, which is just so interesting. Like, you wouldn't expect it almost from a, um, a Peter Pan story to have Peter Pan being in ways usurped or supplant, like, you know, Peter having to deal with Hook trying to take his place as the father to his kids is in a way brilliant you you just wouldn't think that it, that would happen you know um but it does it's part of this film it is an integral part to peter's identity and you know these aspects like neverland making you forget which may or may not be in the original jm barry works kind of fit uh with the world and the universe and th- this film is like really dabbles in everything and really trying to t- to do everything, I think it, it ends up uh, saying something quite amazing. Seeing Hook trying to win over his son and really succeeding to win over his son, there's that scene where Hook and the other pirates have set up the baseball game. Yeah, uh, so one of that, my favorite scenes. Right, so that Jack can have the baseball game with a dad figure present that he wasn't given as, or in real life just a couple days prior. And yeah. little does he know that his dad actually does show up for this one but it's it's sad seeing uh, Peter react to Jack succeeding and cheering him on. But then he sees that Hook is calling him my son and <laughs> is is cheering him on my Jack. And he says, my Jack. And he gets, he's Jack. defensive about it. And it's right after that that he really resolves to fly. And that's what leads to him finding his shadow and finding the old hideout uh, yeah. where they, they used to live with Wendy. And... That's when we get this the sad background, the the history 
of of Peter as a child and how he was lost. Or he says he ran away, but he, in any case, he was basically uh, left alone and was rescued by Tink and taken to Neverland. And then as he grew, he met Wendy and then Wendy starts growing, growing up unlike him. And it, it's really that tie to Wendy and then eventually meeting her granddaughter that helps him to decide this is the life that I want to lead. I want to give a real kiss. I want to have a family of my own and I want to be a dad. And I think that's such a cool concept to come out of a Peter Pan story where Peter Pan's happy thought is becoming a dad. Uh, the, yeah. the, th- the thought that makes him fly. It's not remembering that he was a kid. He he initially thinks his teddy bear was going to be his happy thought. Yeah. And he, because that's what reminds him of being a kid. That's what triggers all these memories. But really his happy thought, despite remembering who he was and who he used to be, he is now Peter Banning. Yes. He's still Peter Pan a little bit too, but his children are his triumph and it's Jack and Maggie too, but Jack being the firstborn who helps him to, to understand the importance of things in his life and to prioritize his children before anything else. I, I, I really think that's a special thing to come out of a Peter Pan story. I, I completely agree. I'm blown away with that analysis, <laughs> I, but I, I, yeah, I, I definitely, definitely agree with you right there. Now, what about hook? What, what do you have to say about Dustin God. Hoffman here? Because what, is, he, what isn't there to say about hook? <laughs> he, this, he's this so is, great. He's, he is amazing. And this film, like, Yes, it's centered around Robin's performance and and the Peter Pan character, but Hook is is a perfect foil for that. He's he's a perfect counterpoint uh, to it all. I mean, here's a man who is destined to be the villain. He knows it. Um, you know, becoming a child or being young again is not an option for him. He is leading these endless assaults on these, you know, mangy children. Uh, and he sort of, he sort of knows that he's destined to be like a comic book villain, right? Always thwarted. He's sort of resigned himself to this. And frankly, he's a little bit suicidal. Um, (laughs) it's played, it's played for comedy. Um, but you know, he's a little, he's a little unnerving. He's a little unnerved. He's not entirely stable. He is surrounded by morons, uh, all the time. And, you know, it takes its toll on a guy who ends up, though, hashing a really solid plan to disrupt, you know, the life of his his long term foe. And his plan comes close to working. And, and some of this is unclear. Like, it isn't exactly clear what magic or what force allows Hook to venture into the real world and take his kids, whether Smee had anything to do with it or exactly, you know, what machinations allowed Hook to do this before Hook himself was necessarily, like, resurrected or brought out of slumber, because that happens, like, before the Hook Hook wears the Hook scene. Like, some of that is still a mystery, and I think that actually makes it work better, for me, but like this sinister force that was Hook, who is not entirely stable, not on edge, is played as a man who really just is also struggling with some of the th- same things Peter is. He's struggling with giving his children, the pirates, um, what they really want, their war. And he's 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 kind of a different type of dad, uh, or he's struggling with 
you know, being a guardian or being being the man that that he wants to be as an adult, a conqueror, a feared, you know, the great and all powerful Hook. He's struggling with his identity just as Peter is is struggling with his. So it's really a cool character kind of study and putting those two off against each other. And they both fight really well with swords. So that's also <laughs> exciting. He's sort of at the beginning of the film, the the boogeyman where yeah. the kids don't know he's real. We don't even really know he's real at the moment. Um, and he's just this creepy character. And all of a sudden he shows up and he, he takes his, his children. Oh no, what are we going to do? And they get to Neverland and Peter is walking around and everybody is singing the song and they, they finally <laughs> meet with him and he comes out and he's like a celebrity diplomat in a lot of yeah. ways. Yeah. He, he's like, who is this man with whom I've arranged this? meeting this isn't the peter i know and he, he he isn't quick to violence at the start it's just like this isn't what i signed up for Let's, oh yeah uh, and then he eventually gives him a chance he says okay you have three days to prove that you are peter pan and that uh and you you have that time to prepare and then we will have our war and it'll finally be you versus me but in those moments when he doesn't believe that this man who he who has appeared in Neverland is Peter. He does lose that will to live, um, and is a little bit suicidal. He he sort of doesn't see himself as Hook if Peter isn't Peter Pan. He has to have yeah. an enemy to fight. He has to have some sort of adventure, and his adventure has always been fighting Peter Pan and the Lost Boys and whoever else uh, sides with Peter. And so that, I think that's an interesting, it's almost the, the Joker Batman scenario where mm. they, they both have to, they both need each other or I don't, I don't know. It's almost Harry Potter esque too. Neither can live while the other survives or I don't know. I'm getting a whole thing, a lot of things mixed up, but <laughs> they are very much tied in this, this bit of fate where one is destined to conquer over the other. And he exercises that psychological warfare to to make Jack like him and join his side over his father's. Um, yeah, and it's it's this really interesting diplomatic version of Hook before we even get to the final fight where he does stay true to being a pirate and exercise bad form and cut Peter's arm and well, yeah, die a coward's death. Good form, bad form, these contracts, the letter he leaves for, for Peter on the, on the door, you know, with his scabbard, with his sword or dagger just in the door. I mean, there is something so formal and almost, you know, I'd have to do some research on it, but like, is this the pirate code that we're seeing this good form, bad form? Is it just, is it British? Like what, what's going on with this whole contract thing? This, this, uh, the niceties must be observed type hook, uh, <laughs> this villain who is, is again, very formal and, and in ways professional. And then you have a real professional, right? An actual lawyer whose weapon is not a sword, but his checkbook, right? <laughs> he pulls out, <laughs> he pulls, he's like, uh, hook says to him, you know, Peter, draw your weapon. And he opens his checkbook and his fountain pen. <laughs> and he's just, it, this is, it's such, it's so many great also uh, comment, comments on uh, fantasy meets non-fantasy. In addition to just growing up and being an adult, the fact that, you know, there's swords and then there's, it's literally the, uh, uh, the pen is mightier than the sword moment. Um, it's a funny joke. I guess, and and really just fun. Every every ounce of this movie is 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 fun and playful and 
exciting and, and also at times sad and deep and thoughtful. And that leads us into Jack, who is being manipulated by Hook. Um, for so much of the film, he just wants his dad's. He wants Peter's love and attention. And he also wants to still be a kid while he still can. He's on the plane and uh, he's being a kid. He's throwing a ball around. He's drawing <laughs> pictures of his dad falling without a parachute. I mean, he, he's being a kid. Um, and Peter tells him to grow up. When are you going to stop acting like a child? And Jack says, well, I am a child. And he's being forced to grow up early because of really the harsh truths of his dad's broken promises. His dad says a couple times, my word is my bond. And the first time he says it, it's about showing up to the baseball game. Lo and behold, he doesn't come to the baseball game. So on the plane, when Peter says, my word is my bond, and I'm going to show up at six games next season, what faith does he have that his dad is going to live up to his bond or his word? And None. it it's... Yeah, none at all. It's just a harsh truth that he has to face, face at this moment in time that his dad isn't there for him the way he wishes he was. And Hook highlights those for Jack, highlights his disappointments in his father to turn him against him. And that, that baseball game is a genius move on Hook and Smee's part to fully acclimate him to Hook. This was sort of the nail in the coffin, as it were, for Jack and his father's relationship. Um, and it's... It's tough uh, because especially when we see him dressed as Hook in the, the full pirate garb when yeah. Peter shows up for the, the final fight and he says, I am home. I don't want to go with you. I don't want to go anywhere. This is where I belong. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the film says kids are simple, you know, like just just be there for them. Allow the allow their imaginations to to take you in places that may not be, you know, what you're expecting and really just. Listen to them and, and cherish the, their childhood. Cherish the fact that that they have these these imaginations and these creative whims and this energy that may, t in the end, tire you out. I, I really think one of the best characters in this film is Moira. You know, is is Peter's wife, and she has this line, you know, to him where she says, you know, these these are the the precious few years of our lives when they want us around. You know, and she says this to, to Peter, who's just, you know, keeps taking these phone calls from Brad about these snowy owls or whatever it is <laughs> his foundation is worried about. And, you know, she says this to him and it's such a, a true line. And between Moira's, um, you know, criticism of him and Wendy's, you know, sort of looking the way she treats him, that her disappointment is palpable in him. It really is the heart and the thesis of this movie, I think, that comes through in these through these women characters um, that you need to to just be there. And that's all it takes for Hook. That's all Hook needs to do to win Jack over is just be there and let him be a kid, too, when he takes him to smash the clocks. Like, yeah, you're causing some real property damage. I mean, one could argue they're already broken, but just, you know, take your bet, let out some anger and, and de-stress, and this is this is what being a kid is. It's it's not always doing the the right or nicest or safest thing, getting having a little bit of danger, a little bit of you know athleticism, a little bit of action is actually what a child needs to grow and to thrive. And we get we get sort of the epitome of what it means to be hopeful and young and imaginative in Maggie. Yeah. Um, she's immune to Hook's manipulation because she's really still at the age where she thinks the world of her parents and that they, they can do no wrong. Um, he, he I, tries so hard on her, he which does. is actually, I love, I love how hard 
Hook tries um, to get to get at Maggie, and you know by telling her that that her parents were happier <laughs> when they weren't born yet. What an <laughs> awful thing to say! Um, your parents tell you stories at night to shut you up. I mean, come on, it's insane, right? Right. <laughs> but there's a certain truth to it. There's honestly like when you become a parent, you there is a part of you that is gone. The, you know, you will not for the first several years until they're they're grown and perhaps move away. You will not be yourself or you will not be the, the, the same person. Being a parent comes with a responsibility. Being an adult comes with a responsibility. And, you know, it's not, it's not uh, unheard of for, for people to, to regret um, or miss days before they were parents and this, that, the other thing. There's some truth to what Hook is trying to say. But because he's so crooked and just so... Uh, non-empathetic, really, with what Maggie is feeling, he completely loses her, and this is how Jack is able to remember what her words are to him. Really, Maggie is just, as as a a hostage, is really just able to, you know, comfort the pirates who are feeling as though that they are not full or whole, that there's parts of them that are missing, and, and Maggie, in singing that song to her, really brings this desperate sense of of family that all of them need and it's she really takes up the wendy role um in more ways than one you know at the beginning of the film we saw her as wendy in her school play um but in the i'm thinking of the the disney animation of peter pan as well wendy is the the lost boy's mother she tells them these stories that she's read and and because you know she has little brothers that she's also told these stories to and the lost boys really look up to her and they need this like wendy makes them whole and maggie sort of serves that function on a on a grand scale to all the pirates all the all these grown men who for some reason are you know stuck being grown men who if they ever had mothers have forgotten all about them um, Maggie serves a, a really important function to kind of give some humanity to, to them as well. I hadn't really thought of the parallel with her being Wendy in the play at the beginning and then really serving the purpose and the function of Wendy once in Neverland. Uh, that's really cool. And then the, the song that she sings, uh, When You're Alone, that was actually Oscar nominated. It did lose to Beauty and the Beast. But looking at the oh. lyrics, um, it talks about how when you're alone, far away from home, an angel sends a star when you're alone and mm-hmm. you, any star I choose watches over me. So I know I'm not alone. And that's the song that enthralls uh, the pirates and it helps. It triggers a little bit of something in Jack because it's a song that his mother used to sing. Uh, it, it's really a, a cool song and a cool moment where a, a little bit of the Jack from, from the real life from, uh, the, the, the part of Jack that does love his parents and does miss his family and does want to be with his dad and his sister uh, comes to surface and Smee takes him away asking him about baseball rules or something like that. But it, it is a sweet moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but really the, the moment where Jack fully comes back around to wanting his dad and wanting to go home with Peter uh, is when we lose Rufio. Um in his dying moments, yeah. Rufio says, real. you know what I wish? I, I wish I had a dad like you. Um, and Jack is crying and he, he understands what he's lost and what his father has done at this point to come and attempt to rescue him. And it, I, I think being a child, we're often uh, exercising extremes in the same way I was talking about with Peter earlier. 
where mm. when you're a kid, the the present, the the thing that is happening right now is the most important thing. Right. And everything that happens right now is blown completely out of proportion sometimes. And so when Jack gets angry at his dad, yes, he's justified in his anger a lot of points in this film, but it's still just a moment. Mm-hmm. And that moment is magnified when he gets to Neverland and he begins to forget about his previous life. Uh, but in that moment where Rufio wishes I had a dad, he says, well, I do have a dad and he's right there Yeah, and I miss him and I still love him despite anything else. And look what he's done to what, look what he's gone through to come and rescue me and my sister. And so that, that moment is really heartwarming and heartbreaking too, because I like Rufio, but, uh, it, it, it really is a nice moment. Um, a- absolutely rufio all all of these all of the lost boys have unique characters that are all so well explored like like spielberg has pulled out all the stops he he really created a film that is so deep and so so many moving parts in this movie and they all kind of pay off um you love this film for the lost boys you can love this film for the pirates you can love this film for tink <laughs> Although the beyond production story is that Julia Roberts was not easy to work with on this film, but uh, you know it's there's so many things to love, and all of these you know characters really have a chance to shine, which is really really exciting. There's not n- nobody's really glossed over necessarily. There's enough of Smee. There's enough of Wendy. There's enough of Tink. There's enough of each of the Lost Boys. You know, and it, it it's it becomes important who Peter's successor is and you don't know who it's going to be. And, you know, all of these things that really the film can, can weigh the options of who would be a good leader, who would be a benevolent, you know, um, person to leave in charge after Rufio's death. And can you ever really deal with hook when Peter has to decide, you know, to tell hook to take his ship and leave Neverland and he never wants to hear his name again, you know, this is an option that he gives him. He shows him mercy and it's very much a parenting moment. I think for, for, for Peter, not just to the audience, but to, to the people who were there with him, you know, the lost boys, like he choosing what kind of man you want to be is, you know, or what kind of adult you want to be is what the game is all about. Um, I think in the end, I agree. And there are so many other characters we could talk about more in depth. Uh, I just want to mention a few of them and move on. But Smee, uh, played by Bob Ho- Bob Hoskins, Perfect. is so wonderfully silly. Um, one thing that I caught this viewing that I hadn't paid attention to before is when Peter first shows up and he's saying, you know, I'm not Peter Pan. I'm Peter Banning. I'm a lawyer that this isn't you. I'm not who you think I am. And Smee sort of scorns him for trying to deny that he's Peter Pan. He says, what's the matter with you? Are you trying to do me out of a job? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of the better lines. It's fantastic. There's that one. And I've always loved, I think I have, I think I've had an apostrophe. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, It's such a contrast from Bob Hoskins in who framed Roger Rabbit, where the easiest, this hard boiled detective, no nonsense, all that kind of stuff. And then here he's just this, this colorful character, lots of fun. Uh, just a great foil to Hook's more serious take on the role. And then we have stuff like Tinkerbell, who really introduces us to the fun in the movie. She's she's telling the first jokes, really, um, playing dead, making jokes, laughing at Peter. Um, 
Yeah, I love all of that stuff. Really, really honestly, when Tink arrives, when Tink comes from Neverland to take Peter back is probably a really good part in the movie. I'm, I'll point out the music because the music there is superb. But just again, with special effects, you know, she's a tiny big Tinkerbell. She's a little bug. And she's the fact that she's like in the dollhouse with the Barbies, you know, or with the dolls. And, and it just is shot the way that it must have been shot is it's just so fun and it's just something different you don't really see it on you know I had the thought uh when I was seeing it on the screen recently I was like you know we don't we don't see a lot of miniature work anymore you know not a lot of this stuff where somebody's the size of an ordinary household object and you're seeing it in comparison those movies have sort of gone away um you know you can name a couple but it's just not something you see too often And, and it's done here in this film with some greatness. I mean, Tink's apartment too, um, being in an old, you know, grandfather clock, like the top of an old grandfather clock. And she uses a part of a, a, a master card or something as a, as a mirror, a gold card, uh, you know, in her apartment as a, a vanity or something is, is so funny. Um, but it's outside the box thinking. And then the last character I had to mention was just Granny Wendy, played by Maggie Smith. I mean, we love Maggie Smith from the Harry Potter films. And uh, this was way back in 91, and she still plays old so well. <laughs> um, she, she's just the perfect grandmother character. And she she's so uh, beautiful in stature and in mannerism and is just a, a lovely presence on the screen for the first half of the film before Peter goes to Neverland. Uh, I, I just really like Maggie Smith and she's great in this film as well. Yeah. I mean, uh, gosh, the, I'm trying, I'm trying to think of all these other characters I want to mention, but um, Toodles, for instance, all all right. the, the, char- the character actor Toodles uh, played by Arthur Mallet, like he's such a, memorable part of this film and i mean he gets a, a hell of a send-off at the end of it um there's there's no small parts really and whether you're Thudbutt or rufio or pockets you know <laughs> the lost boys each and every one of them is special and so so fun um to watch i'm not sure actually if you've seen this but uh they actually managed to do a reunion of the lost boys last year for the film's 25th anniversary Mm-hmm. I don't um, know if I saw it, anything. I think I remember seeing pictures or something like that. Yeah, there's a um, there's a special video I think from Entertainment uh, E Online. Uh, I believe did it. Spielberg was not affiliated uh, with the gathering, which is very weird. But again, you know, whatever he has his own reservations about how this film turned out. Um, but they did get all of these actors who were part of this amazing film. I mean, really, that's that's what makes me saddest about the fact that this film wasn't a huge success in every single way is that there was never, you know, a sequel or these kids probably don't have a lot of opportunities to see each other. But they were all part of this amazing project, probably filmed for months, you know, in the early 90s when they were all children. And this uh, documentary that I'm just pointing out here um, kind of just shows uh, a reunion that they had. And I think they even uh, maybe wear the old costumes or something like that. They they <laughs> they they wear something that's similar to their their old costumes. And they just have a heck of a, a a gathering, and it was you know something that was videotaped and it's really special for the to celebrate this film because I think this there's nothing in this film that shouldn't be celebrated. It's it's so good, it's so entertaining, it's so funny, and it's so meaningful. 
Let's go ahead and dive into the music because that is meaningful to us as well. Um, it's long been one of my favorite John Williams scores and might even be my favorite John Williams theme. Um, specifically, Definitely. largely what we hear in the, if you look at the soundtrack, the very first track called Prologue, um, I actually got to play part of the music from Hook in band during high school. It was definitely oh, a really uh, yeah, it was definitely a highlight. It was like a John Williams medley, and Hook was featured. It was the stuff from Prologue, and I play the French horn, so I got to play a lot of the really cool stuff, and it was pretty awesome. <laughs> I gotta oh, say, oh my god, yeah, I can't imagine everything not not just the theme, but also the theme, but the pirate stuff. The um, God, remember again, remembering Pan is a big. I have a big big part queued up on my phone right here right the very soft very like wondrous and then the playfulness that we know john williams all the strings uh-huh wait for it about to get big about to get this is from remembering childhood And there it is. There he and takes there flight. There it is. There it is. Yeah, <laughs> that's the part where we were jumping off couches and 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 you know, d- dancing in the air. Um, but it, it's so very much classic. And I actually set the uh, that part as a uh, it's an alarm when I wake up in the morning. <laughs> I uh, actually have a hooker a hook alarm or two as well. Oh, what's yours? Um, I think it's just the the main flying theme. But yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, it's such joy and such fun and. It perfectly captures again. I, the score moves between you know ruminations on being an adult and boring and professional and all this other stuff, and being a kid again, and be you know everything from the Great War where these children are fighting these adults to the more um, contemporary banning at at work or banning at play um, from the beginning of the film when he's when he's working uh, banning back home when he's, you know, trying to get to the baseball game, but he can't do it because he's in his own world. Um, all this stuff, like, it perfectly melds with the film. Um, I've got to say, and, yeah, I've got to say, Banning Back Home is possibly the most 90s thing that John Williams ever composed, and I love oh, it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Definitely. But, you know, John Williams has long been a user of what are called leitmotifs. Um, it's sort of made famous by the composer Richard Wagner, or Richard Wagner, um, mm-hmm in his operas. And it's the concept of assigning a theme to a place or a character or an idea. And there are Mm. so many of those throughout this score. Uh, We get Wendy's theme when she first appears on the stairs uh, in London. It's absolutely magical. There's the pirate theme when Toodles first senses the coming of Hook and we zoom in on the ship Uh. bottle. There's the Neverland theme as Tink carries Peter to Neverland. And then the the hook theme itself, the dee da da dee da 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 dum bum. It, it's Which so... is basically basically patty cake, patty cake baker's name. Right? <laughs> I'd never thought of it that way, but I guess you're not wrong. <laughs> Bake me a cake as fast as you can. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever be able to hear that the same way. Thanks for I know, that. I know, I know. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> but uh, it, it's such a fantastic villain theme, and then the lost boys theme is like this playful tuba. And one of my favorite musical moments from the film is the track You Are the Pan. And it's yeah. incidentally one of my favorite scenes from the film as well, where everybody is skeptical that Peter is the Peter Pan. And Rufio has drawn the line in the sand and 
all the Lost Boys are standing on his side, except for one. Pockets comes up, and he starts exploring Peter a little bit more closely. He starts molding his face and pulling it this way and pushing it that way, and he makes him smile. And then he says, oh, there you are, Peter. And it's this beautiful string melody in this track, You Are the Pan. It It's so recognizable. I mean, so much of this movie score is recognizable. But a few years ago, my dad was, before I had moved out of my parents' house, my dad was watching this movie in the living room. I was in my bedroom and I knew exactly what movie he was watching and exactly what scene he was at because it was yeah. playing the You Are the Pan music. And it is so good. It's so beautiful. And then we have stuff like Peter's main theme where it's first heard in a snippet sort of at the end of the Never Feast and then uh, there when he first flies after finding his happy thought. And it, it's just such a fun score. It's so thematic. It's like the definition of swashbuckling in so many ways. It is a great score. One of my all-time favorites for sure. Definitely. Um, and I, I love the use of... Right after, uh, I couldn't I couldn't even say what instruments it are, but right when the feast ends, right when the the food fight ends, with Peter using the sword to stop the the coconut, um, where there's that like wow 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 kind of back thing where it's like uh, depth and almost like a foreign, almost Australian outback kind of you know foreign. I'm I, I'm completely failing to use words to explain what I feel, but something about the the texture of the world, like the the part that really makes Neverland seem real, um, is also conveyed through music um, here, separate from any theme. And it really just that's the stuff that moves me greatly. Is it, it really convinces me that this is a fantasy world? Agreed. Anything else to say about William's score before we close up? I honestly think this is possibly his best score. I wouldn't argue that. I mean, it, I don't know if it's my personal favorite by him. Um, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone has a special place in my stock. Yeah, uh, in okay, my heart. that's pretty good. But uh, yeah, I mean, if you, <laughs> if you think about where it occurred, like this is 14 years after Star Wars, and maybe people won't hear any word against Star Wars or its sequels score. That That's fine. They're all very good, but... The nuance here and how it fits perfectly the characters and the parts that are jovial are super jovial and the parts that are foreign are super foreign and the parts that are personal are super personal. Like, I think that this score for my money matches and enhances and plays with, you know, the film in a way that is not quickly paralleled. I mean, Harry Potter has a very good theme and the first few films... There's a reason why the later films don't have John Williams scores and 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 I think that you know it's because they're not this type of movie that works well with with this film with this uh with this type of score. And I mean there's a lot of music. This score is a lot of music. Each one of these tracks is 7 or 8 minutes long at, you know, some of these. And you know, it's almost too much music per film, but not because of how well it fits together. You know, and I mean, to think that that Williams would go this is after Last Crusade to think that he would go on to do Jurassic Park, you know, years later, just a few years later. Um, you can see uh, Williams has hit sort of a, a maturation point, I think, because between Last Crusade, this and Jurassic Park, you've got, I think, an extremely accomplished composer who manages to build the, the fantasy to find the mysterious in the mundane and really play with that in a in a profound way with using nearly every instrument known to man 
<laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love this score. I can't say enough kind words about it, but I think it's time for us to move into our relevance section. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of these, or at least the ones I have listed, we've sort of already touched on, so I, I don't have to linger too much. But I was curious, what what are your big takeaways from this film? Uh, Theme-wise and relevance-wise, I think definitely as I've grown up, I, I'm not a parent yet, um, but I think that it will, this film in particular, and when I rewatch it, will inspire me to live in the now, um, especially with children, you know, and, and pay attention to them and, and cherish the moment. Um, because I do believe when Moira says they're, they're gone too fast and they're gone so soon and seeing Granny Wendy in this film and how old they made the still young Maggie Smith look at the time, um, makes me feel so sad and, and makes me realize how fleeting, youth is really and uh yeah i mean i I think that's really what it is is about the fleeting youth and the the relevance and the theme that i that i take most out of this movie is indeed to to live in the now and because adulthood you know responsibility and being an adult has its perks but you shouldn't forget what it's like to be and have the mind of a child and to run around and you know essentially fly so that's what i get out of the movie I agree with those wholeheartedly, and they they touch on mine as well. Uh, Priorities, setting them, and uh, Mm. finding balance in your life. I've already spoken about Peter needing to find balance, and he does find it, thankfully, by the end of the film. He's a completely new person at the end when he's arrived back in London and is uh, trying to... (laughs) Hey, Brad, you know what it's like to to really fly? Right. (laughs) Feel this. (laughs) Exactly. He he is such a completely new person and almost unrecognizable in that way. Um, he's, he's finally found the balance of maintaining that, that wonderment of childhood and imagination and cherishing his children while they're still at the age where they appreciate being cherished, I suppose, uh, before they hit those those awful years of puberty and <laughs> angst and stuff like that. But he <laughs> finds balance. But it's also, uh, I mentioned how sort of special it is that Peter Pan's happy thought is becoming a father. Um, so uh, growing up is a big part of this film too. It, again, it's about balance. It's about uh, balancing that that aspect of your childhood about remembering what it's like to be a child and to be imaginative while also remembering that sometimes it is time to be an adult and there's joy in being an adult as well that you don't want to be a kid forever uh, but you don't want to lose what is special about being a kid mm-hmm. um, then there's stuff like belief and faith um, whether it's believing in fairies or believing that peter is pan or believing that you can fly And then at the end, when Peter is pinned down by Hook and it seems like he's about to die, it seems like he's been defeated, that we we get a chance for everybody to say, I believe in you. Um, And so there's this this notion of belief in one thing, another, in yourself, in abilities, in whatever it may be, uh, but believing in something. Yeah. And. Really, the the last one I have, and it, it's not like a major theme of the film, but I, I have to believe that Spielberg was saying something about adoption as well. Um, Peter was adopted, yeah. and countless other orphans were aided by Wendy to find homes. At the start of the film, when the, the reason they go to London is, yes, to visit, but also because Wendy is being honored as this woman who uh, basically 
saved all these children's lives and gave them a home and gave them a family. And uh, these these people wouldn't be where they were where they are today if it hadn't been for Wendy taking them in and helping them to make it in the world. So Peter was adopted and he sees the value in that. And then we have the lost boys like Thudbutt and Rufio who think of their parents. Thudbutt says that his happy thought is his mother. And Rufio says, I wish that I had a dad like you. So even in their absence of having parents, they wish that they had them and they see the value in having them uh, even being orphans. And so seeing the value in both Peter and Moira as parents and uh, seeing that it's a lesson that Peter has to learn for himself, you can you can be a good father despite not having one of his own as a child. But it, yeah. it, for me, it's just adoption is important. Having parents is important in some way, whether it's an actual father, mother, or a, a surrogate father, mother, somebody who you can look up to as that father, mother figure. Um, again, not a super prominent lesson from this movie, but I, I have to believe that that is something to be taken away. I definitely agree with that, actually. Um, and you're, and you're right. Like the get it, people can get stuck in, well, I didn't have a good childhood or I didn't have a good parental figure. How can I be a good parental figure? I think this film may have some answers for that. Again, putting in the time, um, caring about listening to what each of the lost boys is their own separate person in this film. And you know, what are their wants? What are their needs? And, um, I think to some extent, you know, Tink really, um, cares about them as well, which is, which is really nice. She's sort of an adoptive, um, caregiver of sorts as well. But seeing that these, everybody needs one, right. And, and it may make you vulnerable like the pirates are when Maggie sings to admit that you need something like that. Um, but ultimately you're a wholer person when you, when you have it, when you give it, when you be that person for others. I agree. Um, any other closing thoughts before we say goodbye? Bangarang. <laughs> Bangarang, indeed. And I, I, I want to close with just this one last thought. To live would be an awfully big adventure. And <laughs> with that, that is the end of the official 65th episode of Cinescope. Thank you, Eric, for bringing this special film from our childhood to the table to talk about this week. Hey, man. Uh, always and forever. You know that. Um, I'd love to come back again. It's just always so much fun. Yes, sir. It won't be too long. I'm, I'm sure of it. <laughs> yeah, I think we, uh, we'll knock off a few more movies on that list and maybe some others, including Space Jam. Uh, maybe. Yes, sir. Maybe Space Jam. We'll see. <laughs> it's happening now. Space Jam is happening. We're going to make that left at Albuquerque and we'll see you right there. <laughs> okay. Uh, contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast and at Cinescope pod on Twitter. Please consider rating, reviewing, maybe even subscribing on iTunes or your podcast app on uh, your iOS device. Please consider emailing feedback and ideas to thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. And you can also use that email address to contact me regarding co-hosting. If you have a movie that you love, think you can talk about it for a bit or for a long bit, uh, email me. I'd love to have you on the show. And just something, a feature that somebody just recently used that I don't advertise very often. If you go to the website, which I will say in just a moment, you can actually comment on individual episodes and I will see those and uh, can interact with you that way. So if you would like to go to the website and go to this episode on the website, then you can leave a comment directly in feedback to this particular episode. So you have that option. 
Now, Eric, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Spielerman, S-P-I-E-L-E-R-M-A-N. You can listen to my Harry Potter podcast, MuggleCast, M-U-G-G-L-E-C-A-S-T. And you can also listen to, I edit a Star Trek podcast, which is improvised comedy called The Improvised Star Trek. Find them on Twitter at Improv Star Trek. I think I actually have a new MuggleCast episode in my queue to listen to, so I will it's be doing that one. very soon. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I edited that one, actually. I don't usually edit, but I edited, so. Well, great. I'm looking forward to it. The yeah. best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. Also, Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And don't forget about my other podcast, An American Workplace, which is an office discussion podcast, as in NBC's The Office, Uh, We just started season three. We got a new episode coming out this week. In fact, listening to this episode now, it came out yesterday. So you can find that where podcasts can be found and at the website workplacepodcast.com. And then you can find the information for this podcast, uh, show notes, all contact information at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thank you once again, Eric. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. Same. Always a pleasure being here. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 65. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 66. Have fun and celebrate movies. (laughs) 